satellites on a very wet Friday afternoon. Still got an amber storm, amber rainstorm warning and a thunderstorm warning until at least 1.30. Never mind, Marshy is here to whinge and moan about all the things that you can watch. So join us on Facebook Live if you have a mo. Morning Brew is our page. And we're there as we say hello to James Marsh. What's going on? Hello. hello. Yeah, you, grumble, grumble. Are you wet and there? I've actually not ventured outside this week, uh, today at least. Um, well, you can't. You're in Because it is dark and rainy. Centre, but but a small, small point. But yeah, let's not talk about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I am here to, I suppose, try and persuade some of you to go outside, uh, if only no. to go inside elsewhere Netflix and watch something. <laughs> There's a couple of Netflix things that um, may be of interest. We have the uh, Trainwreck Woodstock 99 documentary that actually sort of dropped last week but i've now had a chance to watch it and, and that's it, worth and it, talking and it's not about. called train wreck is it what's it actually called well it is called train wreck well, yeah, but, but it's it's called also called cluster fuster should cluster we say fudge. or cluster fudge cluster fiddle um yes it's they've made a right royal mess of it i believe is the uh, intention of the title i got that mm. so that is on um i've got to make sure i don't say that now and that's on, on Netflix. There is also a uh, vampire action comedy starring Jamie Foxx called Day Shift, which drops later today on Netflix. Out there in the big wide world, yeah. we finally have uh, Robert Eggers's The North Man. Oh, yeah. Liam Neeson is up to his old, old, old tricks yawn, yawn, once I'll more. hunt you down, blah, 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 blah. In memory. And, uh, and then we also have an award-winning French drama called Happening to talk about. Okay, where we? Hey, join us on Facebook Live. We need the teamwork, don't we? Absolutely, we are nothing without you. <laughs> What's first, old chap? What's first? Well, let's do let's do Trainwreck Woodstock '99, which is a three part documentary on uh, Netflix right now, and it documents the debacle that was the '99 uh, Woodstock music festival. Oh, yeah. That I think most people will be vaguely aware of the fact that it it turned into a complete mess and ended up with people with essentially the attendees trashing the place yeah and it looks into you know why you know how the festival came about why they chose to do it where they did it um why it sort of turned into such a problem and tried to get the bottom of sort of uh, yeah, yeah, sort of, yeah, what went wrong, what went through the minds of all of those people involved, who was really to blame for all of it. And I think it does a pretty good, fair and balanced job right. of trying to get to the bottom of something, albeit... What I, I, I wouldn't assume at this point that everybody knows about this. I certainly didn't. Um, so fill us in as much as you can along the way, actually. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so in the summer of 1999, an attempt was made by Michael Lang, the original uh, uh, brain behind Woodstock. You know, the, the documentary actually starts with just a quick recap of Woodstock, which one. was the big music event that happened out, you know, upstate New York in the summer of, of 1969. It's become emblematic of the summer of love and of the 60s and all the rest of it. And it was this... Um, this three-day event of peace, love, and music that is widely considered to be, you know, a monumental success cultural, culturally. Yeah, Financially, it was a disaster, and they turned the whole event into a free festival. There is a fantastic documentary about the, the original Woodstock that is made and edited by Martin Scorsese that was what made was that way famous, back when. What was that famous announcement? Something about there's some bad brown going around or something really famous. 
Yeah, well, there's a lot of those sort of announcements that they made over the tannoy that have since been sampled into into sort of songs and dance tracks and what have you. And there's one about um, about the acid, That's and it. it's like there has been a rumor going around that the acid is poisoned. It hasn't been poisoned; it's just bad acid, you know. Okay. And the, the announcements about it being it being a free concert—that's the APIs they had in those days. Well, this is very much this is very much the situation. So, forty years on, Michael Lang and um, and a couple of other organizers uh, attempt to recreate that. Uh, they set the scene somewhat that it was it was the summer of um, it was the year of the Columbine shooting, which was like the first real mass shooting mm. uh, at a high school. And they wanted they wanted to sort of rally around a cause, and they had an idea to rally around the cause of uh, you know gun violence and making a statement against obviously gun violence um but at the at the same time it quickly becomes apparent that they actually just wanted this time to make money yeah, last time yeah, it was well. a financial disaster but a cultural uh, milestone this time they were like okay what we really want to do is make money out of this and very quickly you can see that they were just cutting corners and budgets were being um slashed and it all began with the choice of location you know they were trying to find somewhere that would be suitable and in the end they settled on uh, a recently closed military base in upstri- upstate new york the local mayor got really on board with this because they saw it as a massive influx of capital for the area uh he, he thought it would be a good way of re- reviving or sort of washing away the bad vibes that had hit the community after the base was shut down yeah and um but what they failed to really think about is that that it's it's about sort of 10 square miles of concrete and if you're doing that at the height of summer in 100 degree heat there's nowhere to hide and all that heat is just being reflected off the tarmac so it's going to be very 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 hot all the time uh, unless suitable shelter is put on uh, unless there's adequate food and water at reasonable prices and all the rest of it needless to say none of those things were put into place because they just wanted it to be a um you know, as profitable as possible. Also, it, there's a massive sort of disconnect between the organisers who are very much of a different generation and the youth of that day that the the festival was targeted at. You know, this was like 1999. The biggest bands in the US certainly at that time were Limp Biscuit and Corn. These like uh, Rage Against the Machine. You know, these hard rock sort of heavy metal kind of acts that. The, you know, promoted a very different sensibility to the music back in the, you know, the peace and love music back in the 1960s. Um, so it attracted a very different crowd and uh, they could they sort of oversold the event. Very good point that, James. The music di- dictates the flavour of the thing. Exactly. And there wasn't exactly. and Vietnam and, you know, that was the override. Yeah. Well, that was it. And there, was, there wasn't really any, that same sort of sensibility. And, and so any, anyway, what happened is that, you know, they got all these like very, very heavy, very hardcore acts in playing back, back to back to back to an audience, an overpopulated crowd who yeah. are un, underwatered, underfed, over, over alcoholed, over drugged, over sexed. Uh, and it just turned into a kind of pressure cooker of dis- of disaster right. where by this but you know they were getting increasingly rowdy by the second day uh people were starting to get sort of frustrated and irritated by the heat by the lack of amenities by the disgusting state of the of the park because they had sort of slashed the budget on sort of waste disposal and 
hygiene and uh, cleaning the porter toilets and all of that. And it just turned into an absolute sort of disgusting cesspit in a hundred degree heat on the tarmac. Everybody's hung over. Everybody's off their heads on, you know, well, on you name it, basically. And also there was this very kind of sort of frat bro-y, testosterone-fueled, increasingly intimidating Not Woodstock. It was it was the antithesis of Woodstock, and it ended up it just turned into again, like I said, a pressure cooker, and got really nasty, right. essentially. Okay. Uh, and the, I think the I think the documentary does a really kind of great job. I mean, it, it, on the one hand, it it lets events unfold almost chronologically, so you get this this consistent you're sort of hit consistently by wave upon wave of oh well surely that's the worst thing that happened oh no wait the next you know by the next morning they realize this had happened and this had happened and so it's just this sort of compounding yeah uh not you know chronicle of disaster and and horrific hello to steve but it but it also it also got really unpleasant and uh you know there were many many accounts surfaced of kind of rape and sexual assault and all of that because it got it got Awful, and not you know, and also vandalism and arson, and you know, it got it D- got crazy. Dante. Yeah, Steve says I love this doc. My wife and I binged on all three episodes. Real insight into human nature. Two hundred and fifty thousand people fueled on drugs, booze, no security guards. What could go wrong? Says Steve. Well, this the whole thing was so understaffed, and the security that were there were kind of kids, the same age or younger than the people they were supposed to be tasked with policing. Um. And, you know, and you, I thought what it did a good job of is not trying to point the finger of blame at any one person or any one demographic, trying to, you know, unpack, you know, the organizers very quick to say, oh, it's a few bad apples in the crowd, yeah. you know, spoiled and otherwise really nice weekend for everybody else, which it obviously wasn't the case. So they talked to the organizers, the, the organizers, even to this day, seem largely delusional about what they created and take zero responsibility for it. They're po- very happy to point the fingers at the kids. And it, and it also documents this very kind of, um, like you say, hedonistic, uh, sort of Lord of the Flies type environment. Oh, hey, James, Gary reckons that he watched it as well. He loved it, etc. He said, but mm. he reckons aggressive crowd whipped up by the lead singers of Corn, Chili Peppers and Limp Bizkit. So whipped up by the, the singers. Well, this is this is what I was getting to as well. Is that so? You, you had this crowd, this very highly, um, e- easily inf- influ- influenced crowd yeah. of kids, you know, who are there to see bands like Limp Bizkit and Corn uh, and um, Red Hot Chili Peppers, as you said. Uh, the lead singers of which did, yeah, made no effort whatsoever to try and do anything other. Then whip them up into an absolute kind of frenzy, which you know the people have said. So yeah, Fred Durst from Olympus is is largely responsible for all of this himself, and he certainly wasn't wow. holding back and was kind of encouraging them. You know, they were ripping off panels of plywood and crowd surfing, which he started doing as well during his set. So there was nobody there to sort of say, okay, so enough is all, enough. They'd all left, right? It- they'd reached the point where they're like, we can't do this. Uh, yeah, the organisers kind of sort of batten down the hatches and sort of hid half the time. You know, MTV and what have you were covering it, and I think they all ran before the end. And uh, in the end, they were they had to get sort of the state police in, Jeez, which was kind a, of yeah, fantastic. pretty pretty crazy. I mean, and they they talked to some of the some of the um the bands. They talked to like the lead singer of Corn and uh, <clears throat> people like that who have a. You know, he 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 was fairly kind of rational. He was. Do you know something? Uh, when What's they that? came here, 
they were completely and utterly clean living. They weren't drinking, pilling, <coughs> anything. Corn. Yep. Uh, I can I can believe so that. That's quite interesting. I can believe that they were clean as, and they were even on mm. crazy well beingness and everything. I, I mm. know one of the guys who worked for them. It was it was yeah, bizarre. I mean, yeah. Yes, I mean, yeah, I mean, the guy from Corn actually comes across relatively, um, relatively well, but um, yeah, no, I just liked the cross section of interviewees that they got. It was very sort of fair and balanced. Got an interesting little comment here from Jenny, who says it doesn't say how Michael Lang died three months after the event. I mean, that's a director's thing, I suppose. I don't know. I mean, no, it's, it interestingly it does end on this very poignant note where you've got this long, sort of ongoing conversation with Michael Lang, yeah. who. It, who is quite infuriating, it must be said. Um, you know, he's directly responsible for all the fires that were lit on the final day when he has this ridiculous amazing. idea Crazy. on the final night when stuff is already going incredibly badly yeah. to hand out 100,000 candles to everybody to, to do this kind of vigil at the end. Um, and, and yeah, no, it ends with him walking off screen and them saying that he sort of died three months later. I don't think it matters how he died. You know, I don't know how he, how he died, but, uh, I don't think to it this, was. It doesn't, that's what you mean. You mean it wasn't, it, yeah, it doesn't matter to this yeah, at, at all. Uh, so I, I found it fascinating. I had, you know, I'd ha kind of had some idea that things had gone really, really bad and got really mm. out of hand, but it is just, um, a pretty fascinating, absorbing and terrifying portrait of just how things can compound. And I, but I think, the blame has to fall ultimately on the organizers. You know, they just had, they had no real idea of who their, de the demographic was. They had no understanding of their, of their customer base really? and what they were, who they were really catering to. They had this idea in their head of what they wanted to create, but what they actually put together was something that was destined to. Do you think, create. do you think there were sort of meetings where they'd all be going, we have to move with the times. It's contemporary. It's not Woodstock anymore. It's, it's nineties Woodstock, you know, and, and of course um, that there went, is, yeah. there is documentation of, of those meetings yeah. and it's almost, it's almost the opposite. Oh, they wanted it's, to go back to the old days, did they? This is the, this is the problem from day one is that they wanted to recreate, you know, that sense of pure peace and love. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> next <laughs> but they but then that's it and they had just no understanding of 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 how the times had changed and what today's uh young generation wanted or indeed had no interest sounds in. like a great doco this sounds really good uh it's it's uh it's very i think it's very well uh well put together very fair and balanced and so it's three episodes and essentially is day one day two day three yep that's train wreck couple of minutes before the news so let's get cracking on part two shall we okay well let's talk about memory which is the new liam neeson movie uh, it's actually two a remake minutes. of a... Two minutes, he's like, that will suit me. <laughs> it's a remake of a Belgian movie uh, called The Outsider Case from about 20 years ago, which is also based on a Belgian book. Yeah. Uh, it's directed by Martin Campbell, who has got a number of good movies under his belt, including two uh, very significant recent Bond movies, GoldenEye and uh, Casino Royale. Liam Neeson stars as an ageing hitman, mainly gets his work from the Me Mexican cartels, offing you know whomever they they tell him to he is starting to develop for um early onset alzheimer's mm. and is trying to battle against that when he is commissioned to go and take out a uh a, a teenage mexican girl who is uh a, a sort of refugee in the u.s who is also a witness to a high level case uh he refuses to do it gets a conscience and decides to and when the you know the cartel inevitably turns on him he decides to go out and sort of wipe them all out as well 
Uh, on his tail, you've got Guy Pierce as an FBI agent who is also um, personally invested in the protection of this young girl uh, who is equally you know, motivated to go after the real bad guys yeah. who are the, the cartel, but also there are large political, not political, but corporate interests right. in the US. Okay. So that's essentially the setup of it. I can get into the result of that. After, after this, movie. it's marshy movie time. Aren't we lucky? And uh, it's just after, it's 20, 29 minutes to 12. I can't even tell the time properly, James. You better carry on you telling can't. us. All oh, right. It's, it's Friday. It's I'm 29 rubbish. minutes to 1. Thank you. Uh, it's it's you Friday. Got, now you've got to say, and you're listening to Radio 3. Go on. And you're listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I apologise. Uh, so, yeah. Yep, memory, uh, Liam Neeson. So essentially, yes, uh, he has kind of his career, late stage career has kind of probably hit its high peaks already. And he's now uh, on, you know, very much in the groove of these sort of cookie cutter action movies. Um, the one thing I would say that to his credit is that his characters in these films do tend to be very much aware that they are over the hill and they're facing, you know, the back nine and the last days of their life and their career, you know. They either now want to retire or get out of the game, or in this case, their health is failing. Yeah. And that does become a sort of significant motivating force for them. Uh, other than that, though, he is still sort of trying to beat up people half his age and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Play. That's what um, people want, though. You know that. Yeah. So this one, this is, I'll say straight away, it's not as bad as some of the other recent ones, like uh, Blacklist, which came out earlier this year, or Honest Thief, where there's kind of like one thing, one hook, and he trudges his way through it over 90 minutes. This one, uh, to its credit, has some ambition, arguably too much ambition. Yeah. There's, there's actually quite a complicated plot going on with quite a few number of players, and it's it does get quite confusing. Um if I was being incredibly generous, you could say that my director is trying to uh, put us in the in the in the seat or in the mind of a character who is slowly starting to develop Alzheimer's Maybe and is, is struggling to struggling to keep hold of what is going on half the time. But I think that is me being too generous. Um, so it has the aspirations uh, to be something on the scale of something like Steven Soderbergh's Traffic or even uh, Michael Mann's Heat. You know, it, it wants to tell this big story about the problems with the border and balancing uh, the frustrations of the authorities on both sides of the border, uh, struggling to work with each other, the criminal um, organizations on either side who are working together far too easily and far too happily. Um, and then you have the victims stuck in the middle and you have loose cannons like Liam Neeson's character, you know, the killer with a conscience. Or you have uh, the young the young victim, Beatrice, played by Mia Sanchez, who is sort of displaced by all of this violence and yeah. what have you. So it, it, has, it wants to be something, I think, far grander. And yeah. like I said, it's based on a novel and it is a remake of a Belgian movie. I haven't seen that or read that. Maybe they are more successful. The problem here is that the actual production is on a budget and on a scale that really can't handle any of that, despite the fact that you've got Martin Campbell at the helm, who is a, who is a competent director. So what you're left with something is this, it just feels 
far too overstuffed for the framework in which it's being forced to operate because of financial constraints. All right, then. Before we move on, I want to say hello to Fanny, who's obviously been listening and says, Lang died at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre in New York City. According to a family spokesperson, the cause of the death was a rare form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and not shot by a fan. You live and learn. No, or, or yeah, or anything else. So, yeah, nothing, nothing Woodstock-related. Nope. Go on, then. What's next? Uh, join us on Facebook Live. Love to hear from you. What have you got next, James? Okay, well, let's do... Oh, I've got three to do. Okay, let's do The Northman. This Northman's a movie I've been waiting for for a long time. It's a new film from Robert Eggers, who previously did The Witch and The Lighthouse. You know, he is a very sort of unique authorial voice in American cinema, uh, known for these really sort of intensely authentic period pieces. Yeah. Um, this is a Viking movie. Arr. It's an epic movie of uh, blood and vengeance. It is based on the Icelandic tale of Amleth, which itself inspired Hamlet. So it's, it's that old. So you know the story. Peter Skarsgård plays... Um, sorry, Alexander Skarsgård, not Peter Skarsgård. Alexander Skarsgård plays Amleth, who, as a young boy, was a prince, witnessed the murder of his father, Ethan Hawke, by his uncle, Clayce Bang, uh, who then shacks up with his mother, Nicole Kidman. He is forced to go run as a young boy, uh, where he uh, comes of age in the company of another more fearsome uh, vampire clan, vampire clan, Viking clan. Sorry, I've got vampires on the mind because that's something else to talk about in a minute. And but, I felt I thought I had problems because I couldn't remember what time it was. I'm doing quite well, really. <laughs> uh, yeah, do not get confused, vampires and Vikings. They're, yeah, right. Well, they're both a bloodthirsty bunch. I think that's fair. To say. Start so, with a V. Yeah. So anyway, so he um, he's he's become you know a a fearsome warrior who is completely closed off emotionally. He lives for vengeance. All that is in him is the mission to track down his uncle and kill him. He finds his uncle and gets a job as a kind of slave farmer on this farm where he realizes that his uncle is no longer like Lord of the Domain, but they their whole kingdom was taken over by someone else. So he's actually living a fairly relatively humble life as a, as a small landowner. Yeah. So that kind of put his, uh, his quest for vengeance on the back foot somewhat. However, he knows that this is the only thing that he's living for. Um, he has been told by um, numerous supernatural, mythological entities, not least Bjork, uh, <laughs> that, that, that this is his purpose and that he is, you know, he is working with the power and the authority of the old Norse gods. Um, and at the same time, he's got, he's sort of shacked up with, with slave girl Anya Taylor Joy, and she's she's giving him the the promise of or the uh, enticement of a better life, and yet he remains committed uh, to uh, doing what he needs. To do. So, I mean, this is all filmed in Iceland and uh, in Ireland, and so it is all you know very muddy, very windy, very rainy, like mountain tops. There's, there's volcanoes. The big climactic battle takes place literally on the on the rim of a volcano, uh, all shot as much as possible. Practically, there is also, a, sort of, like I said, a strong supernatural element to it. Yes. Uh, the, the frustrating, I mean, this is absolutely something that needs to be seen as big and loud as possibly can. The most frustrating thing is that uh, not only have we had to wait rather a long time for this to come out in Hong Kong, it is now out, but it's playing on like four screens in the whole city once a day. So if you have any interest in watching this film, you have to go now. I can't go promise now. you that 
I can't promise you that it'll even last the week, quite frankly. Okay. Um, you know, it's like I said, it's screening like in a couple of places once a day as of today, but uh, it won't hang around for very, very long. Right, but then. it's well worth it. If you have any interest in this in this kind of movie, uh, act now. <laughs> you know, act go see now. it this weekend. Right, because it is, it is pretty stirring, bloodthirsty stuff. Why is it only showing in a handful of places? I thought people liked all that kind of thing here. Uh, I, I, I imagine it's lack of confidence from the producers because it didn't do well in the US. Oh. Um, I think that's as much to do with COVID as anything else. It has proved to do much better on VOD and it's selling well on Blu-ray where it's already out in the US, which may even hamper and impede its release here all the more. It's part of the reason why it's coming out later here than it was originally supposed to. It was supposed to come out in April. Uh, is because there is a, this a sort of lack of confidence behind it, but it's you know for the for the audience that knows what it's getting into and wants a big blood curdling Viking revenge movie, this is what it is. And this, the cast is great. You got Alexander Skarsgård, Ethan Hawke, Clive Bang, Nicole Kidman, Anya Taylor Joy, Willem Dafoe, Bjork. I mean, what more do you want? You know, this is if you like Game of Thrones oh, or anything like that, you're gonna you're gonna lap this up, right? But you need to you need to act quickly. That's All it. Right, then. All right, moving on, moving on, moving on. Um, I want to talk about this French movie happening, which won the Golden Lion, which is the big, big prize yeah. at the Venice Film Festival last September, so almost a year ago. Uh, it's directed by a young French filmmaker called Audrey Dewan, uh, adapted from the novel, autobiographical novel, um, apparently, by Annie Ernaux. Uh This is set in early 1960s France, uh, and we follow <clears throat> uh, Anne played by Anne Vartamoli, who is a university student who discovers that she is pregnant at a time when abortion was illegal. Uh, and so she she's a very promising literature student. Uh, she discovers she discovers very quickly, very early on, that she is pregnant. What's she going to do about it? She goes and asks her doctor for help. Her doctor says, absolutely not. You can't even ask me questions like that. We'll, we'll all get in trouble. We'll all go to jail. You'll go to jail. I'll go to jail. It is terrible. She has to keep it secret from her friends, from her classmates, from her dorm mates, from obviously from her family. Uh, the guy responsible is not in, on the scene either, but she really does not want to have to give up her education and give up her aspirations for uh, a fruitful life just because she's got pregnant. And so what is she going to do about it? So that leads her on a very precarious path that is often very traumatic as she explores her sort of backstreet options in provincial France in the early 1960s. It's needless to say, this resonates very strongly right now in certain parts of the world yeah. where these rights, because it's, it's an incredibly impressive, well-acted, well-performed movie that is incredibly traumatic and and powerful yep. but shouldn't be it's only as traumatic as it is and as powerful as it is and um you know precarious a journey as it is because these things are illegal uh because the decision is not her and as you know many many people obviously have an opinion on these matters yeah. and uh, in certain parts of the world those opinions are more more are shouting out and drowning the voices of those uh to whom it matters most not least the women themselves um, I thought it was, it's great. It is not an easy watch by any stretch, uh, but it is an absolutely vital watch. It's incredibly powerful, important, well put together. I think Anne Duchesne, who plays the lead, is 
fantastic yep. and the camera is on her most of the time there's a great supporting performance uh by anna Mouglais, who's a very memorable um french actress who has this great sort of deep husky voice that once you've heard it you can't unhear it uh it's it's punchy stuff but it is you know it's a compelling and essential viewing super and one more Okay, so lightening the tone somewhat. On Netflix, as of 3pm today, you can watch Day Shift, which is a vampire comedy starring Jamie Foxx, who is in LA, and he's a, he cleans pools for a living, but his big secret is that he's actually a vampire hunter. Uh, he has been uh, sort of dropped from the unions for, for various things that happened in the past, but he wants to get back in the unions because he needs to make the, the good money again, otherwise his estranged wife and daughter are moving to florida because he's a deadbeat uh so he is being shadowed by dave franco's um union rep who is a little dweeby office drone who obviously has no experience in the field whatsoever so yes there is this big underworld union of vampire hunters of which snoop dog is another one yeah <clears throat> and uh but he has to yeah he has a couple of days to hunt down as many vampires, collect the, the the teeth that he needs to pay his bills and win back his family. Uh, this is direct, the first movie directed by a guy called J.J. Perry, who is the, la the most recent string of sort of stunt guys turned filmmakers. Mm -hmm. You know, so he's arriving in the in the wake of sort of David Leach and Chad uh, Stalowski, who did. Um, sort of John Wick and movies like that. Actually, Chad Slusky is a producer on this. So J.J. Perry was a stunt guy on the John Wick, John Wick movies and on the Fast and the Furious movies. So all the right movies, if you like, for good practical effects and fight sequences. Uh, this has among its supporting cast people like uh, Scott Adkins, uh, who is a great British martial artist, stunt performer, uh, who is the lead in small movies and it's, you know, great supporting turn in big movies. So he does a great job here. So the movie itself is pretty goofy. It's got a bit of, um, it's got a, it's kind of on the tone of something like lost boys or fright night or something like that. So it's got a sense of humor. Uh, it's, it does not hold back on the, on the gore and all the rest of it. Uh, so it's got a bit of blade going on as well. And even a bit of dead heat. If you remember the eighties movie, dead heat where a cop and a zombie kind of join up together to sort of fight crime. Uh, there's a bit of that going on as well. Um, so the, the, the movie, the plot, the story is kind of dumb. It's kind of dumb and goofy and stupid, but the action is brilliant. All the fight sequences where, you know, where he's offing, offing vampires, lots of, lots of very inventive decapitation okay. going on here. And all the stunt work, car chases, you name it, are all done sort of really, really well, really impeccably. So if you're in for like a big, dumb, silly Friday night, uh, this is, this is actually kind of, a lot of fun, but it does it does come with a splatter warning because it's yeah it's a vampire movie. Yeah, what do you know? I want to give a last word to Gebby, who says, "Have you seen Ambulance? I did, and I really enjoyed it." Yes, I have, and I really enjoyed it. Fair play. All right then. I think we talked about it here. I yeah. don't know. I'm just asking. Don't shoot the. Nah, don't you don't shoot listen, the axe, no, man. No, yeah. Anyway, tell <laughs> us what we had today. Okay, so that is called Day Shift. That's on Netflix as of later today. Also on Netflix, we have. Trainwreck Woodstock 99, which is the documentary about that music event that went terribly. The French drama happening is uh, essential viewing if you've got the stomach for it. Yeah. We also have uh, The Northman, you know, which is a big swashbuckling Viking revenge epic, but you are going to have to move quickly to find it. And memory. See, I've already forgotten it. 
I've already forgotten memory the Liam Neeson movie. All right, then. Super job. We'll do it all again next week. Marshy Movie Time will be back. (laughs) 